This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I am joined today by Eric Franchi, James Barrow, and Daniel Druger from Market, as well as the excellent podcast Taking Inventory about retail media advertising and a whole bunch of stuff around social monetization and other interesting stuff. I'm really excited to have them here. James and Daniel, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us on. We're huge fans of uh, huge fans of the pod. You guys were the reason why we started our podcast, so excited to be here. That's great to hear. You guys have much better production values than we do. I, I listen to your podcast. You have like background music. It's really well edited. Eric and I just slap this thing out every week. <laughs> I give Daniel as the secret yeah, weapon. Seriously, he has the. I take full credit. The, the AIs are getting very good. Oh, okay, okay. Let's talk about that later. All right, the AI is doing the podcast. I would like to replace myself with Chad AP, maybe. <laughs> so let's just start with the basics. Uh, what what is market or with uh, the URL is with market, but I assume you just call it market. Yeah, yeah. We, it's just called market, but you can you can check it out at withmarket.com. You basically we have this thesis that every walled garden and every sales channel is basically going to become AI driven. So you'll you'll log into their AIs and you'll sell your products and you advertise against it. And we think that's like a really logical place for there to be an abstraction layer where marketers and brands can basically manage all those AIs using AI. And so the way we kind of think about it is like step one and all that is like, let's help you bring all your data together and you can talk to it. And then from that, the data can actually start to adjust things for you that what your business should be doing, how you make more performant decisions. And then ultimately, you can say, I trust you, go for it. So we're trying to build basically this fully autonomous marketing AI for all of your marketing initiatives. Not ambitious at all. Yeah. I mean, we we love Snapchat to come do this. So we figured uh, we figured if we were going to leave, we we're going to take a big risk. So um, it's it's early, but, you know, it's it's pretty cool. I, I'm shocked every week, kind of the new things that that it's able to do. All right. So maybe zoom out a little bit and give us your perspective about how the market is coming together with your background from Snap, that's a walled garden, obviously not very interoperable. And I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it sounds like what you're saying is there's going to be a lot of different places that marketers are going to have to do their business uh, and they're not going to be interoperable. And you need to bring some intelligence to that problem. Yeah. And, and I don't think they're necessarily like, I think the walled gardens get a bad rap for not being interoperable. They kind of are like each of them have their own ads API. And so like you can build systems that talk to those and coordinate against them. When like the cookie was the key identifier, it was a pain in the butt. Uh, I don't know if we can swear on this one. You can on taking inventory. I think, I think butt is acceptable. Okay. We would not, we would edit you out if you okay. said ass or ass cheek or <laughs> but, anything like that. So in the, yeah, in the pre- cookie, you know, sort of regime, the wall gardens were not very easy to work with. But in this world of like first party data and coordinating across all that, 
you can build tooling that makes it very easy on the demand side to advertise across all these things. And that does strikes as such a logical thing for like an AI agent to go do on your behalf. It was a pain when you had a bunch of people logging in all these tools and dealing with it and people were building kind of, you know, workflow against it. My first company before we were at Snap was one of the early ads API companies. So we've been, you know, been beating our heads against these things for the last 15 years. And I think the wall gardens in general are accessible. And I think that, you know, if you can get big enough to become one, you probably should become one. There's some really big benefits to it. I, I don't think that like open web should go away. I just think that there's like a, a very real place for both of them. So you're, it's an AI to wrangle other AIs because the platforms have their own AIs. So what does that mean? What are specific levers that your AI could use to tell the other AIs how to behave? You can like basically we have a whole thing of basically prompts and sub prompts. So you can say, listen, tell me how my campaigns are doing, how are my sales, what are my worst performing products, which images should I be changing across these platforms? And then the system will actually go ahead and make the suggestions, it can actually create images for you, it can create audiences for you to go ahead and do it, and then it can push it to those different platforms. And you know, we have this sort of thesis too that like, even though you're going to be working with these different AIs, it's not going to be this idea of just like me and the AI together. So it's actually what we call it like basically group chat, where it's like me and maybe the agency are working together with our system, or me and my co-founder are working together with the system, because like ultimately there is a form of human intervention that has to take place. But we think it's like a very logical way for this to work. And our UI looks like kind of looks like ChatGPT. Like, and we do think, and we feel pretty confident about this, like a year from now when you buy ads on Meta, you're going to be talking directly to Meta AI, right? Like point and click is going away. It's all going to sort of change. And so we're sort of preparing for that world where you can have someone who's, you know, sitting on top of all that stuff. Do people just type in more effective exclamation point Basically. return? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we, we, we should have... Uh... I should have mentioned this in the beginning. I'm, uh, our fund is an investor in, in market. Our fund is, uh, is an investor in, in architecture as well. You guys first started uh, focusing on retail media. In fact, you know, taking inventory so named for the connection to, to retail and all that stuff. Retail is like the fastest growing category, you would think, you know, if you sort of like classify it as, as open web. How do you think about retail and retail media as, you know, perhaps the next set of walled gardens or like an interesting place for this AI stuff to, to act? Is it, you know, are you focused on the walled gardens? Are you thinking about retail media now? Is it is it next? Like, where does it fit in, in you know, this evolution of AI? If you take a look at kind of what we're trying to accomplish, and we think that there's going to be this the proliferation of, of walled gardens or even hedged gardens, I think retail media plays squarely within that. You know, we've started with kind of what our background is on, on the social platforms with Facebook, TikTok, Snap, et cetera. CTV obviously is something down the path, but retail media is exactly kind of where we would want to expand. And I think part of that is each retailer has a very specific audience. They have very unique data sets around their customers and around their purchasers. And it's really about how can they leverage that to you know, better tailor ads and experiences on their own platform, but then also be able to reach those customers on other platforms whether that's on CTV, whether that's on social, whether that's on other retailers, it's really leveraging kind of their their greatest asset, which is their kind of customer data um, and purchase behavior. And, you know, I think we'll talk about it a little later, but I think as we look at ads and kind of purchasing and purchase behavior being kind of the, the new frontier of customer data, right? Point of sales data, 
kind of transaction data, when we look at attribution, it all comes back to where's that purchase being made? Who's making it? How are they making it? And retailers have that unique set of data. And I think we'll start to leverage more and more of that over time into our AI. Yeah. And, and one thing we, we talk about internally a lot is that like this thesis that like payments are the new cookie. And so like if that is the case, then it makes sense for retailers that kind of control enough like screen time, right? They can be big enough to have enough inventory and enough data to merit building a walled garden, then they should. So, you know, I think, you know, the question becomes like, do the social networks become retailers, right? Like TikTok, like the difference between TikTok and Amazon slowly is going to be like the UI, right? TikTok's making a huge investment in social commerce, right? Yeah, it, it, they have to. And, and Meta will and has as well. They're really all going to start looking a lot like each other <laughs> in some ways. And the question is, is how much of the sort of distribution and sort of supply chain management risk are they going to take on, right? Like in the case of TikTok, they're going all in. You know, Shopify was in that business and then actually divested it. But I do think, you know, you look forward, you know, a few years from now, I think that like we're not even going to talk about retail media, going to be kind of back a little bit to like social media or like, you know, commerce media or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, if if Walmart had bought TikTok, as the discussions were during like the Trump administration, right? You think about like, what is Walmart? How would you think about Walmart today? And it'd be a lot different than you do right now. That would be pretty bizarre. I remember that, you know, let's split TikTok among Walmart and Oracle. And, you know, that's that was not on my bingo card. But like, I, I just want to push back a little bit, maybe because I'm just old. But like, it feels as though there are only certain kinds of products that are really appropriate for social commerce. You know, you're not going to buy mayonnaise on TikTok, I don't think. Uh, you're not going to buy a couch on TikTok. Maybe I'm wrong. Am I wrong? I think you're wrong. Yeah. All right. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but but I, I think that, you know, if you go to like even TikTok shops, which is not like the most elegant implementation, and I'll be honest, I'm not like a huge TikTok fan or, or user, they basically shoved a store into the app. And that's fine. And that will probably work because they control so much screen time and you know, consumer behavior drives decision making. So I don't think it's, you know, if you look at Facebook Marketplace, like, and that has been extremely successful, people don't give it credit. But like, that is a behavior that kind of makes no sense for Facebook, but is working. And so I do think you'll buy mayonnaise. And, and the reality is you're buying dumb stuff from, not dumb stuff, you're buying superfluous stuff from Uber. And that be who you used to get your cars after you like had too many drinks. So it's like kind of random. No, I, I mean it makes sense, but I think the yeah. dumb stuff marketplace makes a ton of sense for TikTok. I get all kinds of dumb stuff ads about like put your dog on a T-shirt. I'm totally fine with that. People should spend their money on dumb stuff. I'm just I'm just a little skeptical <laughs> of the claim that TikTok and Amazon and Walmart are all going to converge. Are you buying couches there on any of them yet? I mean, they have to just go. They have their own kind of upmarket problem in some ways. So maybe that stays in the same way in commerce, like maybe there'll always be open web inventory. Maybe there'll always be this premium commerce inventory that is like outside of these wall gardens, but it will make up a relatively speaking, really small percentage of sales. And I do think too, I mean, we're starting to see where there are gaps in kind of data sharing or that idea of payments as the new cookies. Roku is a great example, right? They're cutting partnerships with a ton of these retailers to combine that data and to understand downstream events. And so I think where, to your example, I'm not buying mayonnaise directly on TikTok, but if I see a Hellman's ad and it's 
through Instacart. And then I have Instacart on my app, but I purchase it. And my credit cards are linked because I have it both on TikTok and Instacart, and the data is being shared. Then there's a pretty good signal that I, you know, I had exposure to that ad. I mean, we're going then back to kind of older media mix modeling or kind of measurement models. But I saw that ad, I had exposure, my credit cards are linked, I purchased it on Instacart, right? And so I think there are, you know, it's not a perfect corollary, but there is, uh, you know, we're seeing good examples of that in the market today. And I think Roku is a you know, leader in that. So you guys are building this really fast, you know, as an investor, I've sort of had the benefit to, to watch you, you build this, um, you know, faster than you know, I think anything I've, I've seen in a long time. AI is moving really fast. We'll probably talk about the, the Google Gemini announcement um, later on. How are you staying on top of this stuff? Because some of the things that you're saying, I think, you know, for our traditional ad tech listener, if we rewind it, you saying that you think that everything is just going to be like, you know, push a button, set it, forget it, automated buying, and, you know, everything is sort of like removing the the human element. Um, a, I think that's shocking and scary. And B, I think people are not in the middle of this like you guys are. How are you learning? Where are you getting the information? How are you making this part of the business so quickly? Yeah, I think there's a few parts. So one is, you know, even though we are building, you know, an AI platform, like we are honest with ourselves that like we are not building the actual AI, right? So like the actual AI is like it, to build an LM or to build these models requires like $5 billion. And so, so like we aren't even trying to play that game. What we basically are saying is let's try to make sure we know everything that's going on. We understand like the best models out there and to start thinking about models almost like they're apps. So if you got to like step back a little bit and think about what we're trying to do, it like it almost is like a second coming of like the marketing clouds, right? Like the marketing clouds are a bunch of different apps that you were working within. We're just saying like there's going to be all these different models that are right for your job and we can help a business take advantage of them. And so I think that's one part that, you know, we've been really focused on and like, we're just intellectually, I think also just really curious about it. And then the other thing is I do think we kind of have the perspective a little bit that like we're still at an ad platform. And so we sort of think about it, like if we were at Snap, how would we build this thing? And if you look at, and listen, Snap's got its problems, but like relatively speaking, I think we did a really good job and, you know, them and businesses like Meta, you know, the way those systems work is they're objective-based buying models. And so like when you build an ad campaign on Snapchat or Facebook, like you are basically putting in a prompt. You're saying, give me app installs, give me video views, right? Now, people didn't think of them like they were prompts because like that wasn't the thing in the vernacular. But that's like how we've always built tools and systems. So I think to some extent, that's where like, we're like, of course, this will work this way. It's just going to be complicated because it's across a bunch of different sort of modalities. Um, so I, I think that's where at least it's, it's less scary to us just kind of having that point of view. In that context, um, if, if we're moving to a world where every platform is effectively Pmax, uh, where it's like, just give us what you want and we'll make it happen, doesn't the outcomes end up becoming a power law curve where basically Google and Meta, that have the most data just do vastly better than number three, number four, number five on that list? Yeah, it's it, it's the same thing with like, it's why that it's such a logical incentive for them to become walled gardens. Right now, that may mean that people, that consumers get better results. Like, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Now, there is like a, a natural limit to scale, right? And like, that's our bet, which is like, if you are a SMB, I think you're right. just using Facebook and Google and calling it a day for a very, very long time. 
if you are a brand that is scaling, that is selling a bunch of different places, right? And that's the other thing you have to remember is that the market power of the wall gardens is being decreased because of commerce. And so in that case, right. just think of it like, if you want to be a really good TikTok advertiser, you have to sell on TikTok. If you want to be a good meta advertiser, you have to sell on meta, right? So they're holding you hostage. There's a bunch of different people now that have leverage across the, the stack, right? And so that's where we think it's like, it actually, it's going to be more cross channel than people think, even though there is that power law dynamic. Okay. I think we got our takeaway from this, from this podcast. The market power of the walled gardens is being taken away by social commerce. That's a really interesting thought I've never heard before. Um, I believe, and I've talked to other people, that in 2024, we may hit the trough of disillusionment on the retail media, that it's hyped so much, and it has certain problems that we're sort of painting over right now. The problems being, among other things, you know, a lack of bid density on product listing ads. There aren't that many advertisers per search. Open web is still very cookie dependent, high expectations of revenue and margins, et cetera, et cetera. Do you want to react to that? Am I being Debbie Downer or is there some problems here? No, I mean, I, I think I would agree with kind of that, kind of how you how you explain that. I think there will be just like on kind of social and we've seen this play out a hundred times, there will be some large winners that have scale both on the supply side and the demand side. And then there is a long tail of platforms that, to your point, heard retail media saw fat margins, thought they could build a system or kind of partner with a Kevl and offer a system. But then they realize, wait, this is a lot of work. Uh, we don't have the bid density. We don't have advertiser density. And actually, advertisers are getting burned out because there's a thousand channels they can go to called retail media. And so I think we'll start to see a separation of retailers that have very strong retail media platforms, just like we saw on social, where Facebook and Google scooped up uh, the majority of spend. We'll see maybe a few others beyond just Amazon and Walmart, but a, a handful that own that space. And I think what people don't realize, and, and I'm going to go off a little tangent, but I, I think what people don't realize is Amazon is the biggest uh, retail marketplace, um, if we want to categorize it that way. And they own 60% of the market. Walmart is a behemoth. They own 3% of the market. The gap between Amazon, Walmart, and then Walmart and everyone else is incredible. And so for somebody to think that they can come in and try to even get a percent or half a percent, the challenge there and the uphill battle that they're going to face, it is astronomical. And so I think we're going to have to start to see that long tail of retailers either try to partner, they're going to go to ad networks, they're going to try to do something else that they don't have to manage, that it's uh, revenue on top of their core business. And, you know, it's, it's, additional revenue for their shareholders, for you know, their investors, for their owners, um, but it's not meaningful to the business. And I think that's what we're going to start to see. And to your point, like people are going to realize like this, this is not a standalone business for uh, a retailer doing you know, right. 10 million a year. Does that make you bullish on Critio? Uh, you could, you could skip that. No, question no, no, no. I'm thinking about it. it. I, I like what Critio is doing. I think that it's going to be challenging for them if there's not a big market with a ton of fragmentation of big players. I think it's going to be challenging if you have a ton of small retailers trying to aggregate that up and try to fill supply into all of these different retail media networks. And so I think what Critio is doing is great. I think they're, how they've built that business back up 
has been tremendous. I think they'll probably win in that space. I don't know if it's a space worth winning long term. My take is that like in some ways, it's like I, I still think the market is kind of missing the script. It's like what happens when YouTube gets serious about shopping? Like what happens? You know, we know what's happening with TikTok. Like there is just like I, I really do come back and think about like screen time as like being the main driver of like ad revenue for most of these businesses and like people just spend their time at all these different places. So I think there's interesting businesses that can be made, but I think like in a, we've talked about this internally, it's like as like zero interest rate policies go away, just it's so obvious now there's like, there's more partnerships, there's more consolidation. And like these businesses that like you thought could be standalone very quickly sort of can't. And so, yeah, I think the smaller RMNs, are going to be in an interesting spot. And I just think that the really big guys are going to bring in a lot of demand really fast. Makes sense. Um, talk about the podcast, Taking Inventory. Why'd you start it? Like I said at the beginning, we started it because of you guys. I mean, honestly, we we were we started listening to you and we're like, this is amazing, all these different people, you can get on it. And and I think also you guys got showed us just like people really want to share what they're thinking. And we were learning so much about, in particular, I'd say like from the open website, from you guys and we we're like you know for better or worse a bunch of our friends are all these wall gardens and so we were like you know this could be interesting to start doing and it's been awesome i mean like we've learned a ton it's been fun to have like friends on it for for us like you know we did it you know purely because like we wanted to kind of make sure we were kind of back in the mix in ad tech and make sure that we kind of knew everything was going on we don't monetize it it's like you know it's like a little random we've had you know we've had friends from from Snap and from you know Reddit and, and X. And then we've had, you know, the founder of Serve Robotics who builds self-driving delivery bots um, because he's you know putting ads on it. And we had the former White House chief correspondent at CNN on to talk about like, you know, the election and ads. So it's all over the place in some ways, but but it's been like fascinating and it's been fun. And it's been a good like muscle for us to do. It's like hard. I mean, you guys know it because you guys do it. It's like it's hard to do these things at first. And so I think it's been like a good thing for us to do. Yeah, I always worry like I'm going to run out of guests at some point, and it does not. <laughs> We're coming up on a year, and it hasn't happened yet. But at some point, <laughs> uh, yeah. what's the most surprising thing you've learned on your podcast? I think you know the the serve robotics one was fascinating. It like I always I've always believed that like ads are actually like, like a good thing. Like I'm like very much like I think it's a positive thing, but like. The fact that it can change the economics of a business like that so dramatically and make it where like local commerce can be more effective, make it where like, you know, like his vision is like to drive down the cost of goods for last mile delivery to like lower, you know, the number of deaths within a mile of your household. And it's all basically subsidized via ads. It like makes the model work. Have you, you know, kind of came away with a different way of thinking about B2B marketing, right? Because you're doing this, you're enjoying it, but like, make no mistake, you guys are running a startup and that startup is connected to a lot of the conversations um, that, that you're having. Has it shaped how you're thinking about building a brand for market, thinking about, you know, how, how you, know, you sort of like build B2B brands in general? Or is this truly like, hey, this is a pod and we're, we're, we're just having fun and growing and doing good things? No, it's obviously, you know, we, every episode we say it's sponsored by market. So it's it's very much like for our business, but I think I've learned people want to just like know the people behind the business way more than they used to. Like my first company, 
you know, we we sold that in 2015. And like, you know, I don't think it mattered kind of who was behind it. Like we were building software. It was kind of like this, you know, it wasn't like there wasn't a personality to it. I think now you look at Eric Sufert and you look at you guys and you look at AdTech God and you realize that like, you know, at this point, I think if you don't have like a personality tied to your business, it's going to be hard to get uh, exposure. And it's definitely made it like our like, you know, we're, we're onboarding people on the market like every day. And but we have like a huge wait list. And I think it's from that podcast. Like, I really do think that a huge driver of it. So it definitely changed the way I think about it. The other part to that, I think, is kind of the the purpose driven aspect of these different businesses. I mean, James mentioned Ali Kashani. You know, he's building this robotics business, but really understanding why he's doing this, right? He's trying to drive down the death rate. Jessica Yellen, she started a new kind of newsletter and media business on social, but she did that because cable news was kind of fear mongering and she didn't like how that was playing out. So hearing the stories of all these people, why they're actually building these businesses, why they're actually pursuing the paths that they're pursuing is really interesting because at, at face value, you'd say, this you know, Ali Kashani is trying to deliver goods within the last mile, but it's really driven from a place of purpose and uh, a vision he has, not just, I want to get a burrito to your door. Right, right. And I, I think that's sort of why I started Marketecture. I really wanted to get to the heart of a lot of these ad tech techniques and products and not have the sort of marketing BS that you often hear. Uh, you also reminded me to do a little promotion, which is uh, if you're interested in advertising on AdTech God or Mobile Dev Memo's new podcast or this Marketecture podcast, please email me, ari at marketecture.tv. With that, let's take a quick break and go through the news of the week. This Marketecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo, viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewable. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. All right, we're back. Uh, so we published last Thursday, and it was just a little bit too early uh, for what we're calling the GFY heard around the world. Uh, so that is uh, everyone's favorite industrialist, anti-Semite, alleged um, Elon Musk telling the advertisers to GFY, and we will keep it that way so that we don't have to check off the not safe for children box on YouTube. So, um, yeah. <laughs> You guys, uh, you know, worked at Snap, so I think you have some perspective on this. Like, is this a good idea to tell your advertisers that? I, obviously, the the delivery probably could have required used some more nuance, but I do think that like the thing that we were focused on at Snap, and again, we didn't do it perfectly, but like we learned this a lot when we worked with Facebook and our first business is that like you have to build products for economically rational advertisers if you're going to be at that scale. And what that means is that like the tail and the torso is kind of everything right now you can like, cause they are, they need to be rational just given like in terms of, of their businesses. And that's also how you build like a real auction and how you can deliver value, right? Because like you have signal of like, I'm actually delivering here. And so I think the way he said it was wrong, but I actually, and I've tweeted this to him probably a weekly, he's not responded, but like they need to build a 
SMB, self-service business right now. Forget about the big guys. Forget about the agencies. Right now, that auction has all this funky stuff going on in it. And they want to be a payments business. Like payments and SMBs and ad tech play really well together. You can do a bunch of interesting things in terms of subsidizing costs for them, giving them better payment terms. They have a hand to play that is like, at Snap, we would have died for it. Because the fact of the matter is, if you can marry a lack of concern around pure brand safety and volume with economically rational advertisers, you can deliver really good results. And again, Ari, what I'm saying there basically is like, SMBs may not really care where their ads are next to. They just care if they work. Right. Uh, yeah, the shotgun filled with crap <laughs> and shoot it at the, shoot it at the consumers. It, but I, but I just from a pure business strategy standpoint, start there and then bifurcate your inventory. And you see that happening everywhere. There's a reason why there's premium channels. Snapchat has Discover. Reddit has uh, different subreddits that are with inside their like basically brand safety placement. Every Almost every walled garden has two tiers of inventory. Whether people know that or not, I'm not sure. So but it, I agree. And there was some reporting uh, that Linda and and Elon were focusing on the SMB opportunity. I would just push back on whether it works, right? Because uh, I think what you said to start, which is that you have to base your product on economic rational actors buying it, that we're kind of making this assumption, they're making this assumption that the ads work for SMBs, and I don't think they do. But working is a function of price. Like you actually can, you know, like if working is defined by putting a dollar in and getting a dollar out right now, it may not work for their business, but they could take the floors down to zero, right? And find the actual clearing price of that auction. And they could, quote unquote, make it work. Now, can they get enough density and signal to make that work at scale? That's like a different question. But I think they could. I don't think they've ever tried. In like the 10 years I've worked with Twitter, you know, like they were never serious about it. But I have a bunch of friends from Twitter and I love them, but like they got kind of addicted to the brand ad dollars and those dollars yeah. steal impressions from the DR impressions. Yeah, obviously they have great partnerships with the NFL, the NBA. Uh, you see some really high premium video ads and yeah, it's, that's great high margin. Yeah, it's just a hellscape and it always has been. You know, at some point, like it's it's ironic that like someone like a Twitter or a Reddit would try to build brand safety ad businesses first. I think you probably would, and at Snap, for what it's worth, we we kind of recognize that like Snap, it was used by teens for all types of things, and so like we were like, listen, if you're a brand, you want to advertise, we're going to put you in this place we know is safe, and it's called Discover. And I think t Twitter has that opportunity. X does, where the Discover tab or the Search tab could be very safe and have all the sports and the and things like that at the. And the main tab, the feed, could be the uh, shotgun filled with garbage. There's two theories. There, the, the, the theory number one is uh, they have accepted this. You know what? What James, you know, what walked us through um, as the future of Twitter, and they will, you know, build or buy their way into it. Theory number two is this was, you know, intentional to, you know, try to create a lot of chaos, knock down the valuation, and like renegotiate with with creditors. What, what's your guys' take? It feels like there's an easier way to kind of renegotiate with creditors than uh, marginalizing some of your biggest advertisers. Now, maybe it, it serves both purposes, but that being kind of the primary, I don't know that I buy that. But I mean, he's you know he's a brilliant guy, so you know maybe he's playing 3D chess, and I'm, I'm yeah. playing checkers over here. I don't know. He's got this stew of like Botox, Ozempic, and ketamine that's not doing him well. <laughs> I think someone explained to him. 
build a Facebook yeah. style ads well, business and let's go. I, I, I don't want okay. to be critical of, of Linda, uh, but she's not really got the background to do that. Like if you wanted to build a very algorithmic based, you know, small business friendly system, you would recruit people like you guys or uh, people who had been at Google or Facebook at building stuff like that um, at, in commercial roles, uh, whereas Linda's really a big brand person. I would say the only thing I would add to that is that like, and again, we only could take from like our experience, but we, what we found at Snap, again, small sample size, but like we were as a product and engineering org, very committed to this sort of self-service, economically rational business. But then we, they did also bring in Jeff Lucas, who I like love, who was the you know, head of sales at Viacom. And he basically was like, listen, big brands, we're going to have a place for you. It's going to be safe. We understand your concerns and I'm making sure the product team is listening. And that worked really well. So there could be somewhat, you know, at least there's a example sure. of that. Um, working to some all right, let's talk about more personnel changes. Um, so Jerry Dishler is out at Google. Jerry was effectively in charge of everything uh, on the ad side. Um, so he was a level up from like the double click network business. He search ads reported up to him. He was really the head of ads. Um, really everything excluding YouTube, I believe, uh, all those overlap there. And he was replaced with a woman who I do not know named Vidya Srivatsan. Vidya Srivatsan. Yeah. Do you know her? I don't. Um, so I did a little bit of research uh, and I can answer the question of who, who is Vidya. Go for it. And I'm like surprised that I've never heard of her because she's got like an insane resume. So um, started her, her career out 10 years at IBM as an engineering lead. Then went to Amazon six plus years uh, at AWS and was a was a GM at AWS. And then she's been um, four years at Google. And in those four years, she's uh, successively taken on more and more responsibility. So like she started with uh, as leadership on like buying and measurement, and then she added uh, search and Google properties, and now she's running the whole the whole thing. So uh, so Vidya, I know you're out there. We'd love to talk to you. Come on, come on the pod. Number come on one. the pod. Yeah, yeah, come on. And then number two, I think this is a very interesting profile. I mean, it's an engineering lead, a GM at AWS, now running Google Ads, which, you know, we know the future of it is going to be completely like AI and, and engineering led. So this is, I think, super impressive. The ads business at Google is has a pretty clear vision of going all AI, all tech, much yeah. less people. Another thing I'd like to just compliment Google on which is they're really good about allowing people to move up the ranks. Uh, you do not have to do your time for 10 years in some middle Four management role to get promoted. Uh, Sridhar, yeah. he was a product manager. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. If you, if you excel, they will give you more and more responsibilities and pretty damn quickly. Four years. She started, and then now she's running the whole thing. Like, wow. Yeah. So come on the pod. And we know, and we know our friends like Sean Downey, who's now charge, <laughs> in charge of all of America's, Neil Mohan, who's now the CEO of YouTube, these folks um, have had amazing careers inside Google, so uh, it's a good compliment to the way they manage talent. Yeah. Speaking of, did you guys see the the, the, the video mic drop on uh, Google Gemini yesterday? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I watched it oh my God. A, a few times. <laughs> the fact that it seemed to weave so elegantly, you know, text, video, audio, yep. and it was so aware. Like, I don't know if you saw that, that one example where it solved that puzzle, the little cat puzzle. and to me, it felt like, and I use ChatGPT for kind of everything at this point. Like I use it a ton. And this seemed like it was like levels more advanced, like in terms of its ability to understand the surroundings and to like problem solve versus just like do visual identification. I don't know if you got that same takeaway. 
I did. Yeah, I was blown away. I recommend everybody watch the full six minute video because there's different examples of you know what what it can do. And you know, like obviously my my mind goes you know immediately to like what are the marketing use cases and you know like basically anything you can imagine from a marketing perspective, whether it's like your website, your materials, your creative, like being able to understand all that stuff and then like you know you use the tools to produce it and optimize it immediately. It was pretty mind blowing if you start to go down that journey of what this can do. It kind of also gives like context into some of those leadership changes because if you think about you know they bought Looker and you think about like taking you know BI tools and turning it into ad tools, right? Using something like Gemini, you know, to some extent, it's kind of a lot of things we're trying to play with, like from a cross-platform standpoint. But you know, that model I think will be incredibly effective. I, now I do think again, like you know, it's just going to be you know, instead of ads APIs, it's going to be like AI APIs, right? Like this is just, we've just sort of moved the problem, (laughs) but uh, the problem at least will be like simpler to address. More effective. Um, So uh, (laughs) there was a new ANA report um, and uh, I'm going to read a bit of what the U of Digital Newsletter said about it because they said it so well, I didn't feel like rephrasing what they said. You should all subscribe to U of Digital. They have a free newsletter. So effectively, the ANA explored how advertisers could recoup a quarter of their media spends. Brands could save $22 billion by consolidating their buys, retooling their PMP approach, etc. It also found that 36% of every dollar spent through a DSP effectively makes it to the consumer. The rest goes to SSPs, DSPs, MFAs, and non-measurable traffic. And I think one of the uh, – some of – their recommendations, one of the interesting recommendations, that, which is a little bit wacky, is to reconsider PMPs. Many advertisers choose PMPs over exchanges, but some PMPs are problematic and include MFAs on a blended basis, more or less. I'm paraphrasing. Um, so this seems like the same sort of story we've been hearing over and over again. I'm not really sure there's much new here. Um, I'm, gl- I'm just happy they didn't use the phrase ad tech tax, which I find repulsive. Um, Eric, I mean, is there anything new here? Do you, should we even be talking about this? Yeah, I I think the, um, what they highlighted around the, the PMPs is, is interesting. So it seems like, you know, fraud and and bad practices have moved to where the money is, which is, which is PMPs. But the rest of the findings I think are, are pretty consistent with, you know, what Chris from Jounce and, and others that have come on the pod over the course of the past year have talked about, which is, you know, you need to you know, be like very focused on, you know, inclusion lists. You need to be like super focused on SPO, you know, less partners, more trusted partners. I think it's all the same, yeah. the same themes that we've we've been hearing over the course of the past year, but it validates it. And that's a heck of a lot of money that um is potentially just like frankly up for grabs if you look at it from a glass half full perspective. If you if Yeah, you hygiene, right. hygiene, hygiene. I had drinks with a executive in our industry who everyone knows, but I won't say who it is. Um, and he told me the, the most interesting thing I've heard in a while, which is um, that the move to transparent fees is reversing because of header bidding and that some of the major SSPs are actually removing take rates from their contracts because the publisher, from a publisher's perspective, they just want the highest bid. They don't really care what percentage you're taking. And that's a big reversal of the historical trend of removing all the extra fees. That kind of, I was like, what? Is that true? But it sort of makes sense, but it just blew my mind. So uh, I guess the last thing on my list to cover, uh, well, I have two, I have one bonus one, but um, 
There are some reports that uh, Media Post reported, and I think it was reported in some other places, that Media Link, the consulting company, may be interested in buying Pan Lions from Essential. Essential recently divested a whole bunch of their businesses, and Can Lion is another one of their big ones. And uh, I think it's it's kind of inside baseball, but it's interesting. And also, there's this sort of question, can a consulting company run an award show or would they just give all the awards to themselves and their clients? I don't know. It's like, I, I guess I'm, I'm going to ask you guys, uh, you know, James and Daniel, like, is there anything further away from your life in AI and, and these walled gardens than uh, award shows? Do you even know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes, we, we would. We, yeah, I, I mean, you can answer it. Yes, we know exactly what these are. You know, we actually had somebody on on the podcast a while ago, uh, Alex Reynolds, who, who runs a B2B SaaS company tailored for event marketers. And so kind of going back to kind of learning new perspectives and kind of how people are operating different types of businesses and how it all comes back to ads and marketing. You know, I think these events are are a great way, obviously, and post-pandemic are a very performant way of getting in front of the right people, getting your brand exposure. Um, selling through to clients, whether it's consulting or other services. I don't know the the kind of financials of these kind of events and uh, kind of how people run them, but I actually think it's an interesting move for a consulting firm to to buy an event and use it as a a huge ex- tool for exposure, and then also a reason to get in front of the right people and try to sell through services. But it does bring into question, as you say, like how are they actually deciding this stuff? And and to answer your question, I mean. For at least from our perspective, the awards, they probably don't really matter. I mean, if you're going to be totally honest about it, when like I think we were winning them at Snap for stuff and it was like, all right, like, cool. Like, does that mean that we're going to hit our numbers? Last time I was at Cannes, Snap had this immersive dark room. It was like so dark you couldn't see your hands in front of you and you just walk (laughs) around in the dark trying not to like touch other people. It was the weirdest thing I'd been in a long time. (laughs) We, we definitely were good at spending money at those events. and But I don't know if the award, if, if I found out the awards had uh, some form of, uh, we're not pure in nature, yeah. I'm not Shocking, sure. shocking. I'd still go to the but I think, I mean, going back to, to Snap, I mean, if we were targeting, you know, rational advertisers, those are not the same people watching the Cannes Award Show and looking at the Creative Awards. They're saying, what... You know, can I get a UGC ad up for yeah. cheap and is it going to perform I mean, for me? you know, yeah. can, yes, it's, yeah. it's, it's sort of, you, you think about it, uh, about the awards and the, and the work, but I mean, it's really about the media dollars that, you know, subsidize the, the, the entire thing. And when I, when I first saw this headline, I was like, wait, MediaLink doesn't already own it? Because if you've ever, if you've ever been, they have <laughs> a massive presence have had a massive presence, you know, for many years since I, I was going it and going to it um, back in the in the undertone days. You know, it's sort of like vertically integrated. If they can, if they can pull it off, th- thing one. And I think thing two. It's interesting to consider, you know, a boondoggle like Can, which costs like I don't know what it is per head if you're coming from the East Coast, let alone the West Coast. But you're talking like five figures to send a person there, like with plane accommodations, like all, all of that stuff in an age where, you know, what y- you guys are working on with market and everything else is like really starting to disrupt the people thing. I think there's always going to be a venue for high level meetings and there's always going to be like high level engagement in all of these companies, let, you know, regardless of, of the algos. But it was pretty neat to think about it from the perspective of AI, but then also th- to think about like MediaLink, they kind of already own it. So just yeah. like literally own it rather than figuratively own it. 
The uh, so Eric, is there going to be a cabana or a yacht for Aperium this year? No comment. Definitely not a yacht. Definitely not a yacht. No, we'll we'll never heard, do a yacht. Now, we'll never do it. Maybe reader listeners can help clarify. Um, someone told me that this year Can is going to be pretty disrupted because they're redoing the pier and there may not be any yachts. Um, I heard so the same. Gonna really, yeah, that's going to really same. cut back. You might have heard it from me though, and I might just be spreading falsehoods. No, I, I heard it from the same guy. I think. <laughs> okay, this <laughs> <laughs> we both have a guy. Okay, so finally, I'd like to bring attention to my favorite subject, which is uh, the update on Kubian from last week, which I know everyone cares about. Um, so there was an SEC filing that the Adomni Kubian murder is officially off. Sad, sad trombone. Uh, we are now on Kubian Death Watch, and we'll dutifully report when it stops existing. I know you guys don't know what I'm talking about. That's fine. <laughs> Listen to last week's episode. <laughs> has, anybody reached, has anybody reached out to you from the company already? Well, no, but the last time, a couple years ago, when I went on my Kubian rant, they sent a nice note to the sales guy at Beeswax who was trying to sell them a bidder that was uh, that was like, hey, uh, we'll no longer be speaking to you. Um, so I, I know how to uh, make friends and influence people, as they say. All right. <laughs> so this was an awesome episode. Uh, James and Daniel, thank you so much for being here. If you want to hear more from them, you should listen to Taking Inventory everywhere podcasts are found. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us on. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.